good afternoon, um, everyone from Singapore, and welcome to the Gulf Intelligence Daily Energy Markets webinar. Today, for the 10th of May 2023, I am Vandana Hari, uh, founder and CEO of Vanda Insights, and today's guest host. So um, uh, a quick look at what's happening in the oil markets. Uh, economic worries continue to dominate sentiment. Uh, crude prices got a lift uh, late in the U.S. session yesterday. Uh, the U.S. Energy Secretary uh, Jennifer Granholm said that uh, the U.S. Uh, may buy uh, back crude for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve by the end of this year. Uh, and that, that's what um, uh, provided a prop uh, to crude. However, prices are under pressure again today. <clears throat> uh, Brent trading at around 76.67 uh, as we speak. Uh, if you'd like to check out um, a daily Asia morning report uh, that we put out at Vanda Insights on uh, just weighing all the factors that are impacting crude price movements, uh, please do so. Um, it's uh, called Crude Insight, and today's report is uh, appended in uh, today's reading digest. So um, have a look uh, when you get a chance. Um, welcome to my three guests today. Uh, we have Mark Oswald, a chief economist and global strategist at ADM Investor Services International. Vibhuti Garg, uh, she's director for South Asia at the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis and Henning Gloystein, Director for Climate and Energy Resources at the Eurasia Group. Welcome to all three of you. Um, Mark, I'd like to start with you, um, given that, um, of course, I think sentiment in the financial markets is, is dominating uh, the oil complex, but the sentiment has also been all over the place, hasn't it? The, the U.S. banking sector turmoil, uh, the market uh, hanging on to its bets that the Fed will start to cut rates. And now we have the specter of a potential U.S. government uh, debt default. So um, I'd like to start by asking you, how are you weighing these um, three or, or any other uh, potential factors in the financial markets uh, with regard to their impact on oil sentiment? Um, I still think the most important one is the tightening in financial conditions, in credit conditions, mm -hmm. and that is being definitely driven by the concerns about the U.S. banking sector. Uh, the U.S. debt default story, it's definitely a story. Um, it's going to be one which we go backwards and forwards on uh, for quite some time. Uh, but I think the, the the banking sector story is a more important one because even if it isn't a banking crisis, and I don't think it really is, it's a particular banking sector crisis in the US due to uh, bad regulation, um, bad supervision, and bad risk management. <laughs> um, amazingly, 15 years on from the global financial crisis, we have a lot of the same problems that we did then. Um, in fact, one could say 30 years on from the SNL crisis, we still have many of the same problems that we had. Um, but it is definitely tightening up, um, above all, lending to smaller companies, and smaller companies are the companies where, wherever you look, whether it's in uh, Asia, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in North America, are the ones which create jobs. And if they are starting to see um, the cr credit spigot uh, starting to uh, be turned off, 
then that will have an impact on oil demand, on energy demand. And people are still, what people need to remember is as much as energy prices have come down, when one looks at the complete complex, so gas, power, uh, crude, um, um, they're still dealing with the overall increase and it, it is having an impact on people's behaviour. And they're also mm-hmm. trying to manage the transition. So it's incredibly complex. Uh, but I think uh, above all, that one is the most important one. And, you know, and the fact that China's uh, recovery is proving to be as patchy as a lot of people expected, because uh, as yet the uh, property sector crisis is anything but resolved. It's improving, but it's not resolved. Yeah. Hold that thought, uh, Mark. I would want to get back to you with a little more uh, detail uh, on your views on on China. But uh, just going back to the points you made about the financial uh, sector, are you referring more to the ripple effect of tightening credit conditions um, than let's say more dominoes falling in in the bank market, or you think that the latter is also still a threat hanging over the markets? I think the latter is still a threat hanging over the market. The fact is that the Fed has raised interest rates by you know basically five hundred basis points in just yeah. over a year, um, and uh, that is yeah we've not really seen those sort of interest rate increases in a long time, and people aren't used to dealing with it. Part of the problem is that the regulators and the super supervisors <clears throat> basically didn't really account for such a you know. If I think of some of the banking stress tests that we've had over the last couple of years, that was ex- considered to be an extreme event, whereas mm. what's happened now is, to a large extent, normal. So, mm. you know, and the fact is we we could go up, you know, 600 basis points. Um, yes, I think the Fed is taking far more um notice now that credit conditions are tightening and it knows that will operate with a lag particularly uh, uh, the biggest point here is really that a lot of people have fixed rate loans and they don't necessarily roll over when the fed um hikes rates or the ecb Mm. or the bank of england or anyone else and Mm. it's only when people then have to refinance that it starts to hit the economy quite hard and it will by extension hit energy demand yeah, yeah. Uh, the Fed certainly seems to be make, taking much greater note of this uh, credit crunch, but what it can do and what it will do about it, of course, remains to be seen. Uh, Vibhuti, uh, we, since we have you on the on the panel today, I have to ask you, this was uh, a, a news uh, earlier in the week, but one that caught um, quite a lot of people's imagination. Uh, which was that um, a government-appointed panel has recommended that all uh, diesel-powered vehicles be banned in in Indian cities from 2027, which is not too far away. Um, So, you know, can you uh, sort of help us understand what's behind this recommendation? And importantly, how feasible do you think uh, something like this will be to implement? Right. So if you look at the statistics, the transport sector consumes about 80% of the diesel as against the non-transport sector. So definitely uh, the diesel consumption is the highest in the transport sector in India. And um, this kind of a regulation came into effect just for one city, uh, Delhi, and all its 
national uh, uh, nearby adjoining areas which is called the national capital region so any registered diesel vehicle over 10 years old and petrol vehicles over 15 year old could not operate in delhi ncr region this was kind of uh, decision was taken few years back when uh, delhi ncr region was struggling with huge air pollution problem uh, but since the last couple of years, this has been extended on an year-on-year -year basis. And even now, this condition is still valid uh, mm. uh, during most time of the year because vehicular pollution is one of the biggest source of air pollution as well. And when it coincides with stubble burning and all, you know, that's how the government uh, came into action. But now this regulation of, you know, banning diesel-powered uh, four-wheelers in all major cities by 2027. And that's this regulation also has a clause that uh, cities which have more than one million population, it will be effective there. The fundamental reason behind this is primarily uh, to combat air pollution, but more importantly, to accelerate adoption of cleaner mobility solutions as well. So India has made a target of, you know, 30% of electric vehicle penetration in private cars, 70% in commercial vehicles, and 80% for two and three wheelers by 2030. So this mm. kind of regulation in cities uh, will uh, help in achieving that or accelerating that. While there could be temporary issues, but if, you know, we can couple this with strong public transport in the form of expanded metro coverage, and also, you know, uh, electric bus connectivity, this issue can be addressed to some extent. And right. to that extent, the government has also said beyond 2030, no new state bus uh, on any other form will be uh, will come up, but it has to be necessarily electric bus only. Right. So, yeah. right. But, but just to be clear, uh, Vibhuti, this is uh, still a panel recommendation. It's not been adopted as a regulation yet, right? suggested but it's not it's yet to be implemented yeah do you but do you see it being um, being adopted um there will be a lot of resistance uh, uh but it means that it's gonna be maybe implemented in a phase-wise manner so probably right. bigger cities which have much better you know other public transport it can be done in those cities but cities which do not have a strong public transport system uh mm. it's very, very very difficult to implement there yeah and i, I suppose uh, probably it might be wiser to depend on a, on a mix of maybe compressed natural gas in the mix as well for for vehicles because you have to assume readiness of all electric-powered uh, vehicles uh, to 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 take the place of of diesel-fired ones, right? Which might be a bit tricky. Yeah. So there is a strong push on CNG as well, and also ethanol blending, which we I think spoke about last time. So India yes. is a strong push for ethanol mm -hmm. blending with petrol as well to kind of uh, uh, you know address this whole demand issue. But yeah. Um, I think diesel is more higher uh, emitting uh, carbon house source. So uh, mm. that's where the main challenge is and that's what the government is trying to address. And the use of diesel cars or you know diesel transport is more on commercial vehicles rather than uh, pub, uh, 
private cars private, yeah private cars but yeah public transport becomes very very critical to address when we sure. talk about the diesel uh, vehicles okay. and yeah so all the buses and and trucks on indian roads um yeah the, the, thanks for that uh, explanation vibhuti henning if, if there's one topic that is dominating global geopolitics um and it has implications in areas of war trade diplomacy de-dollarization uh, you name it it's it's the growing animosity between the us and china uh, how do you see this dynamic playing out in the energy sector so let's say you know in the in the medium to to longer term yeah thanks vandana it's actually we think it's already playing out because of course the related the the russia's invasion of ukraine saw that china is maybe not openly siding with russia but it's it's really not siding with the the americans and the europeans um in their uh, opposition to russia and that has fed into the energy war um or into an energy war so europeans have phased out russian crude oil imports and uh, refined product imports uh, they are now scratching their head on whether they could stop lng imports from russia or not um and uh, and uh, china is still buying russian oil it's certainly still buying russian lng so is india for that matter um um but uh, so we are already seeing that there's a dividing global oil and gas supply into those countries who still want to deal with russia and those who don't and it actually goes beyond russia as well um, so this has been going on bef- even before this war uh, the us sanctions on iranian oil are being well um adhered to modestly to not at all in in large parts of asia and especially by china uh venezuelan crude oil is still going um uh, to to parts of asia as well so you have these fleets of um tankers of of oil that is sanctioned by by a coalition led by the united states that is still going to asia and there are people starting to talk about good and bad oil that is a little bit of a hollywood term of of the issue but you can see here how how geopolitics is splitting what is essentially used to be a global market um and okay it's possible no one's really running out of oil at the moment but mm-hmm. it's costing a lot of money some people are taking advantage of discounts for sure um india's the most uh a uh, famous example here as well but of course they are refining a uh, cheap russian crude oil and uh, selling it back to europe so this it's not just the indians who are taking advantage of this um yeah. but it overall these are dislocations of what we call them the eurasia group because they they force oil and also gas into directions which under normal market conditions wouldn't make any sense and that means they cost more money and um that is i think the cost of this this wedge that is being driven into global commodity markets but most notably oil by the geopolitical splits and we don't really see a solution to this uh, or an end to this anytime soon yeah you mentioned uh, iran and uh, there were some r- reports recently that uh, the capturing of of two tankers by iran was sort of um as a result of a, a tacit uh, go ahead or encouragement from beijing because beijing did not like the fact that uh, us authorities had seized a tanker of iranian oil that was uh, headed for china so and then we've seen china play a, a greater diplomatic role as well in in, in the middle east uh, you know bringing played a part in bringing uh, saudi arabia and iran together uh, in diplomatic relations So uh, do you see sort of a, a greater influence of China in the Middle East and sort of in diminishing influence of US um in any way shaping future flows as well energy flows 
That's very possible. Yeah, I mean, all of what you just mentioned. I mean, the the situation the tank is seizing in in the Persian Gulf or um, the and the, uh, the um, Gulf in, in the air in general. And the other part is that the deal that you mentioned between Saudi Arabia and Iran would not have mm. been possible under current conditions led by the United States. So, mm. you know, one should be careful in just dismissing everything that China is doing here. This is uh, for now. This is a positive development. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, and one that the United States in its current conditions would, wasn't able to um, to support or to create, uh, foster. And the the other aspect is, of course, that China, even before this crisis started, was quite quietly but actively engaging in Iran. So they they had already said um, a few years back that they wanted to access Iran. In all, they have what they call uh, the Chinese asset oil in in Iran. Um, and uh, they basically are of the position that, well, if, if the Americans, Europeans don't want to buy Iranian oil, we will. And uh, that is a view, I think, that is also quite um, commonly shared in India, because just the proximity of it, Iranian oil is, is a natural supply to India, and to Asia. Yeah. And if, if for political reasons the, the West doesn't want to take it, then it will find its market. Uh, and overall in the Middle East, I mean, there's been lots of talk that the US will disengage from the Middle East to some extent, and China is... Mm-hmm actively engaging more in the region. The latter part mm. of that, that China actively is engaging more is definitely true. Whether the US is is really losing its interest in engaging in the Middle East, I'm a little bit um, still not convinced by. There's a lot mm. of personal politics involved there. Of course, the one famous one is that US President Joe Biden and um, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia really don't get on. That could change yeah. in the United States, depending on who becomes president next year. Yeah, yeah, sure. Fair point, uh, Henning. Thanks for that. Uh, Mark, I'd like to go back to your um, point on on China. And we had um, a a slew of trade and uh, uh, trade data from from China yesterday, including um, oil imports and and refined product exports. And we had manufacturing data earlier, um, which showed a contraction in in April. So overall, uh, the way it's being described is that Chinese macroeconomic data has been mixed to perhaps a bit disappointing. Uh, my question to you would be, do you think the optimism um, over the economic recovery, especially what the amount or the degree of optimism we saw earlier in this year uh, over the economic recovery, picking up momentum in the in the second half of the year for China, do you think that optimism is still valid? Um, <clears throat> I think the perspective that it will pick up in the second half of the year is correct. I think the biggest problem that we have in financial markets at the moment um, and this you know, this impacts even into physical commodity markets above all energy is it's always pendulum swings. It's everything on black or everything on red. So we when we talk about a recovery in China, we expect it to be as it was before, which was it was never going to be. You know, the, the changed geopolitical aspects, the greater uh, uh, demand for self-sufficiency in China, um, the, the distorted, the, all, all the dislocations that Henning was just talking about in terms of um, energy and commodity flows um, meant that it wasn't going to be. Um, <clears throat> So uh, I think the, the the problem is the perspective. So it's the fact that we keep on going, oh, well, it's not 
if we're talking about retail sales, it's not seven or eight percent in in GDP terms. That's disappointing. And then suddenly the pendulum swings the other side. Oh, China's going to go into recession. You know, somewhere in the middle of all of this is where the truth is, and that applies actually not only to China but also to Europe and the North North America. Um, I think the biggest problem in terms of energy, in terms of the, the global perspective, is uh, as has been you know. Asia can now capitalize on the cheap um, energy, which is becoming available from Russia. Um, Mm. The US still is basically largely self-sufficient because of the shale oil boom. And Europe is caught in the middle, basically doing what the US wants, but without the internal resources to be self-sufficient. And that's where Europe actually becomes piggy in the middle. And that's probably the biggest danger of all, because that could see some fracturing between the the EU countries and the UK on the one hand and the US on the other hand, because suddenly they're just going to say, well, we've got so much underlying inflation pressure from energy um, and the US is asking us to do this, but it doesn't really serve our own purposes. And we need to rethink where we're going with this. Yeah, Europe being sort of squashed in the middle is, I'm I'm completely with you on that. And to Henning's points earlier as well, we've increasingly seen a lot of Western European countries also getting torn between uh, sort of loyalty, if you will, to the US versus loyalty to to China. And they don't necessarily want to see things uh, as as black and white. I was just reading uh, Italy, for instance, is is withdrawing from from Belt and Road under under pressure from from the US, presumably. So um, on on that point, absolutely, I'm I'm with you. Uh, Just on the um, China recovery story, there's quite a marked divergence between services which have been picking up phenomenally the services sector versus manufacturing. Do do you make much or do do you think the market is making much of this divergence or, or do you think that's the anxiety as a result of that, that the manufacturing is not picking up at a good pace, it is is a reason to worry about Chinese recovery. Um, to a certain extent, it, that's what the market's picking up on. Though what's happening in China actually is a mirror of what's been happening in the US and the Europe post-COVID. Yeah, yeah. What we saw basically was a strong demand for anything to do with manufacturing. During the COVID period, services was weak. Now we've seen a swing back towards services demand. The problem in China and they've been talking about this for what at least 10 years that they are trying to get a much more services private consumption led economy and they're really struggling with that and the primary yeah. reason for that is basically the property sector because they they want to get that swing going on mm-hmm. but right now given that roughly about 70% of Chinese savings are tied up somewhere in in the property sector. A lot of people have lost a lot of confidence and it's going to take quite a lot of time to restore. Confidence is easily lost. To restore Mm. it takes a lot of time. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue to our survey question today. And uh, I'd encourage uh, the respondents to not be influenced by uh, Mark's views. (laughs) Uh, The question is, so the Jan to April macroeconomic data that we've seen uh, in from China so far, what does it suggest about the country's rebound? Uh, in your opinion, uh, will it accelerate in the second half of the year or will it sort of stay flat? Uh, H2 looks pretty much like H1 or will it decelerate? Uh, so more headwinds uh, coming towards China in, in the second half of the year. 
please go ahead and, and have your say on that question. I have cast my vote. Right. Uh, Vibhuti, let's talk a little bit about uh, the renewable energy uh, sector in, in India, of course, which the, the country has been um, um, very, very sort of strongly, this particular the Modi government has been advocating quite strongly. But last year, India dropped its target of, of having 500, adding 500 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2030. Is it mm. adding or, or having? Please, please correct me on that. Um, but it decided to give itself more. Sorry. Yeah, it it targets to have a 500 gigawatt. Bar. To have okay a total, um, but it dropped that target right last year. It, it wanted to give itself more wiggle room, uh, I suppose, to continue setting up more coal-based power plants, which indeed it is doing. Um, so, given that scenario, and and given that you know funding costs are going up, then the US IRA is, is also pulling away a lot of capital uh, that could have gone, let's say, into countries like India in, in green energy projects. How do, you, how do you expect India to fare with its renewable energy targets uh, this year or, or in, the, in the near term? Uh, just to clarify first that, yes, at COP26, Prime Minister Modi announced that India will have about 500 gigawatt of non-fossil fuel sources. But mm. last year, at part of its revised NDC, India did not mention the quantity, but it still mentioned that 50% of the total installed capacity will come from non-fossil fuel sources. And if you look at uh, India's energy demand, it would, uh, you know, 50% of capacity will be non-fossil fuel. It will be close to 500 gigawatts. So I think uh, while it may not be an absolute target as part of NDC, but it means we will be needing about 500 gigawatt of uh, non-fossil fuel capacity by 2030. Um, okay. In terms of, yes, uh, with the increase in financing costs, uh, which has led to high inflation, uh, we did see short-term impact in the sense that uh, financing cost is a large component of your tariff that gets determined. So we mm -hmm. have seen a renewable energy tariff going up um, uh, by 30, 2030 pesa uh, because of financing costs, as well as in India, there was also an imposition of basic custom duties on imports of modules and cells uh, from mm -hmm. China, which also led to higher renewable energy tariff. So mm -hmm. This imposition of duties as well as higher financing costs has led to high renewable energy tariff. But at the mm -hmm. same time, it is still lower than cost of setting up a new fossil fuel based plant, a new coal power plant. So it is still okay. attractive to build renewable energy. I would say uh, from that cost competitiveness perspective, while the tariffs have gone up, but it hasn't led to uh, still there's a lot of interest. However, uh, I would say yes, because of Inflation Reduction Act, again, there has been um, some impact in terms of flow, international flow of capital to India, because there mm -hmm. are some policy risk or, you know, off-taker risk, which the government is coming up with very strict regulations to address them. Uh, but the investors are finding it more lucrative now because we just mentioned, you know, the uh, the interest rates have gone up by 500 basis points in U.S. itself. So given mm -hmm. the attractiveness of the interest rates in the U.S. market, 
uh, and go uh, government support through infl inflation reduction and a lot of budgetary support being given for domestic manufacturing of you know, electric vehicles, uh, batteries. So there's a lot of investment going within US, which otherwise they were finding Indian market very, very attractive. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, I would say uh, the financing flows have hurt to some extent, um, but mm -hmm. we are still seeing uh, that happening, but definitely it has slowed down a little, I would say, because of the okay. Inflation Reduction Act, yes. Okay, but doesn't sound like very strong headwinds. So that's that's reassuring for uh, those planning to and, and looking to invest in, in India's uh, green energy sector. Uh, Henning, the, the European Commission President von der Leyen announced the 11th uh, package of uh, proposed new sanctions against Russia yesterday, I believe, when she was in, visiting in Kiev. Um, and we've seen reports uh, recently that uh, part of that package um, are proposals aimed at targeting uh, sort of dubious activities that are facilitating Russian oil um, exports, you know, STS transfers and uh, certain vessels just turning off their sat-nav systems and, and so on. Um, my question for you is what from this 11th package, and I suppose it now has to be deliberated and, and taken to, to vote um, by the 27 countries, but what can we realistically expect uh, this package to, to, to change in terms of, because, you know, again, and especially in this part of the world, China and India, um, to some extent, uh, refiners are always on tenterhooks uh, as to you know what more could term, come in terms of sanctions to prevent them from from importing Russian oil. So, um, what do you see coming out of this package in that sense? Yeah. So the the European um, Union's or European Commission's plans now they're mostly I wouldn't maybe window dressing is a little bit too cynical, but this is as you say plugging holes. The big low-hanging, well, even though not low, the, the big action with the product and crude uh, shipment import bans have, have been made, um, and uh, the financial sanctions have been implemented. Uh, the STS bans, for instance, now on the transponder, um, and they're trying to prevent ships from switching off their transponders. In the case of the European Commission, is aimed at the Mediterranean, because there's been a lot of mm. um, STS uh, shipments there in mm. uh, or close to European waters. So that's mm. one they want to um, uh, avoid there. Uh, the European Union will not take action, uh, you know, secondary sanctions action in East Asia. They, they've got no ways of implementing that. If that ever happens, it will come on uh, U.S. initiative. And as mm. far as we understand, the U.S. is at this stage not willing to do anything uh, here mm. because, in the case of India, India has made it really clear to 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 the U.S. and to Europe that they see this as a European conflict. They sympathise mm. in theory, but they do not want to be affected by sanctions. And if that was the case, uh, India would start to derail all sorts of Indo-Pacific uh, trade and security partnerships. That's not worth it. Uh, and I mentioned before that India is actually, Indian refiners are actually sending um, crude, uh, crude um, refined products um, made from Russian crude oil back to Europe. So there's a, it's a backdoor for Europe as well. In the case of China, um, of course, um, the US would like China to, to comply more um, with, uh, uh, with Western pressure not to buy Russian oil, but they're not that desperate. Um, and they really don't want to pick a fight with China at this stage. The, 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 the plate of conflicts is full enough. So at this stage, we do not expect secondary sanctions to be imposed by the West, especially by the US, uh, unless the war um, in Ukraine escalates that much further, you know, more atrocities, um, 
uh, than we've seen already, which sadly, of course, is not impossible, but um, mm. at, at this stage, we don't expect it. Yeah, which one never knows. But but uh, thanks for that, Henning. I'm, I'm sure it'll come as a major relief um, to at least our, our viewers in, uh, in Asia, China and India, as you mentioned, primarily, um, you know, that would just want to be able to, to buy that crude, which is coming their way at, at substantial discounts. Uh, wonderful. We've uh, come up on the hour. Um, let's uh, have our survey results. Uh, Okay, so a little bit more majority think it will stay flat, which is where I voted as well, uh, which is in terms of the momentum, economic recovery momentum. Um, next is uh, will accelerate in, in second half. And oh, nobody thinks it will decelerate. Okay. <laughs> so there isn't a, a great de deal of pessimism uh, with regard to, to China either. Okay, that's interesting. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much. Um, to my uh, three panel speakers today, Mark Oswald, Bibhuti Garg, and Henning Gloystein. Thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your uh, fantastic expertise and, and expert views. We have um, a halftime talk, uh, which uh, is just up on your screens with uh, Jamie Webster. So tune into that. Uh, and um, with that, uh, thank you very much for today and uh, have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye.